Good afternoon, everybody, or good evening, depending on where you are. This is really exciting. We are meeting two authors for the first time, and their book is called Dempsey. So let me briefly introduce you to them, and they can hold up their hands to tell you which one is which. Even I am not entirely sure since we haven't had <laughs> before. Wow. Okay, so Brian Andrews, is that you in the cap over there? It is you. Yeah. All right. Uh, and Jeffrey Wilson over here. Right. Uh, are the writing team behind the Wall Street Journal and Amazon bestselling tier one series, which I'm pleased to say is being developed for film and television, and which has just found a new home at Blackstone Publishing, which is a very cool smaller independent publisher who is a breeze to work with. I really love them. So I'm so glad to have a chance to do something else with their authors. Uh, let's see. Brian is a nuclear engineer and park. Is it park leadership fellow? That's right. What does that mean? The park program is at Cornell University's Business School, and it's a leadership-focused uh, fellowship. So there's 30 park fellows in every business school class, and it's really about developing uh, the next generation of leaders in American business. Very cool. I thought briefly maybe you were a guy at Yellowstone. <laughs> or, or a Yellowstone guy, you know, whatever, whatever different, works. Different park. Okay. Yeah. And who served as an officer on a fast attack submarine. Jeff is a trauma vascular surgeon who conducted combat operations with an East Coast-based SEAL team. Their other novels include the Sons of Valor, Shepherd series, and installments in W.B. Griffin's Presidential Agent series. Wow. So what is there? I'm going to talk to Don in a minute, but I'm going to ask you generally before I make an announcement about Don, which I find somewhat mind-blowing, what is it about military training that seems to produce authors as well as like surgeons and leaders at all? Who, who yeah. wants the answer? It's kind of it's kind of new, isn't it? Like um, we grew up reading our our superhero authors like Ludlum and the car and uh, of course Tom Clancy uh, and Back then, there was a long period of peace, thank God, but very few people were writing in the space other than Ian Fleming, who had actually been there and done that. And now we find ourselves in this new generation where we had 20 years of sustained war, and there's been this, uh, I don't want to say strange, but there's been a very prevalent migration of people from our generation of warfighters into writing. Don is a great example, obviously, the two of us. Uh, Joshua Hood is another one. I mean, Mark Cameron was you know, in, uh, in law enforcement, there's a lot of it. Um, and it's kind of an exciting time as a reader to be reading thrillers because there is some insight and there is some realism that gets brought by people like that. I don't really have an answer for why, but it's definitely a real thing. That's for it sure. It is absolutely a real thing. Brian, what do you want to contribute to that? I think, you know, as military, active duty military members, you know, you're always in a team and, and part of that teamwork is sharing best practices and sharing ideas and quite frankly, just verbal storytelling. I mean, a lot of times I used to joke that, you know, um, in the submarine community, we'd have moments of absolute terror, you know, every once in a while punctuated by long periods of boredom. And so when you're sneaking around trying to be quiet, you know, one of the things that people would do to pass the time is just swap stories and you'd tell stories. And so I think, you know, at least me personally, you know, I, I viewed myself as a collector of stories. When I would go into port, I would collect as many stories as I could so that when I went out back to sea, I could share those stories and bring entertainment. And so it felt very natural for me when I got out of the military to want to continue that sort of storytelling ethos and also sort of highlight and bring to the surface, or at least bring to the public awareness, you know, all the sacrifices and, and, and great values and, and commitment that the men and women who serve in our own forces uh, put into their jobs every single day. And Don. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, people, people ask me all the time, do I need that kind of background? I say, you know, you absolutely don't, because some of my uh, hero writers like um, Brad Thor, Vince Flynn, Tom Clancy, none of those folks had that background. But I think what, um, but you got to get it. Uh, Mark, Mark Graney is a great example. He, he doesn't have that background either, but he spent a heck of a lot of time training and becoming familiar and hanging around and like what Brian said, collecting stories. And so I think, 
I think maybe where the generation before us had to go work and find those stories because of our backgrounds, we've been lucky enough to rub shoulders with the men and women who could be characters in our books. And we just take that and, and turn it into our novels. So Don is saying we're the lazy writers is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, from, from I'll speak from a publishing standpoint, um, what I've learned in 33 years of doing this is, and you guys probably know this, if you're a new writer and you want to write fiction, you can't sell it until your entire manuscript is complete and somebody gets to read it and like it and realize you can actually do the job. You can sell nonfiction on a few lines and an idea. And I think what we're seeing here to some degree is a little bit of that carrying over into fiction. I think there's maybe an assumption or maybe publishers looking for a real platform where they can say, here's a book by a former Navy SEAL. And, you know, it's about Navy SEALs or it's about combat. And everybody goes, wow, you know, obviously um, it must be it must be fact based, must be true. And I think it's a it's a really interesting combination of things kind of coming yeah, the part I think is just hilarious. I'm an 82-year-old woman who's never been in combat. And for some reason, the poison pen has become like an epicenter. <laughs> I kid you not. And, you know, I find that so interesting. Um, Don, you're the only one on this conversation who could even speak to that. Why, why is that true? I think, so the poison pen for um, folks who don't live in the Scottsdale area and haven't been lucky enough to travel there is just every, when you, when you think of an independent bookstore and what it should look like and the vibe and the, like Poison Pen is the quintessential um, independent bookstore. And I think you have, cause you were super, and I don't know if you'll, if I can get you to tell the story on this interview, but you Barbara were super instrumental in the formation of um, the, the ITW and Thriller Fest of which all of us are members. And I think, you know, from your earliest work there, the, the great reputation Poison Pen has, and then you just going out of your way to host, you know, Jack Carr, you know, me, Kyle, Mark, anybody that wants to come, you have that open invitation. I think thriller writers and military thriller writers in particular have just started gravitating towards it. And it's a great place to go. Like, I love coming out there every time we get to travel there. And so I think it's that combination of stuff, but... Are you going to tell how you got the... Uh... No, I'm not going to do that for anything. I can't swear on this thing. <laughs> Whatever it is, it was a drunk remark at the, at the Arizona Biltmore at a conference. I can tell you afterward if you want to hear it, but I don't think I'll be... I, I, didn't, I didn't want a commercial for the bookstore. I just think it's really comic because, you know, yeah. it's not like I know anything about what you're writing about, but maybe it's just that I love stories. And, you know, yeah. I, I gravitate to your to your stories in the same way that, you know, I've never been I've never been a Navajo, but nevertheless, Tony Hillerman's books, you know, mm -hmm. spoke to me. And I, I think that's the power of fiction is that yeah. we can enter into it regardless of what our own backgrounds are. So before we get to Dempsey, I promise we will in just a minute, I'm going to read an announcement that just came my way today from Kyle Mills, who was just here on Monday night. And it's possibly the most closed mouth person I've yet encountered. <laughs> Kyle is finishing or will be with us in September for Code Red, which he now says is his last Mitch Rapp novel in the Vince Flynn universe. He's going to return to writing a character of his own. And he's handed the torch on to Don. Don yeah. is going to be writing Mitch Rapp. Wow, that is really a game changer. Yay. It's incredible. Thank you. It, it really is incredible. And it was, um, you know, one of the, I, I, I never, um, when I was out at Poison Pen, I think last time you were telling me how you met Vince when he was still selling books out of his trunk and he came in to, to get you to buy some. You know, stuff, that right? happened. It was really interesting when I was talking to Mark and Kyle, I was sitting to the, in a, to the side. So I was looking out the back door of the bookstore right across Mark's face and just as that, I, I had this moment when Kyle was speaking where I, I almost envisioned the door opening and Vince, Vince walking in. Because you guys know that he was like the Bridges of Madison County guy. He, he self-published his first book. And so he cold called, he, he pulled up behind the store and he opened his trunk and he brought out books and he came in to sell me on why I should take a chance on this totally unknown author. And it really was a, a sort of a choky moment there. It is, and um, and 
and when you ask people about Vince, you get lots of stories like that. Like everybody, everybody has a story about him, about him being a kind guy, about what he did. Um, David Brown's got a lot of funny ones. He was his longtime publicist. And so I'm really jealous that I never got to meet him um, before he died. But his writing had a huge impact on my own. And so I was, you know, I had kind of a long and torturous history to publication. And after my third book didn't sell, I took my favorite um, book of his, Protect and Defend, and I wrote it out in note cards and I taped it to my bedroom wall so I could look at it and kind of understand what he did. And so to think, you know, from that, from me taping my favorite Vince um, Flynn book to the, to the wall of my bedroom, to being able to write his books now is, is kind of mind boggling for sure. Well, it'll be an interesting journey going forward. Man, I'm sorry, done. <laughs> Lucy Drake. Don is the author of the um, Matt Drake series and also has written in the Tom Clancy universe. But let's talk about Dempsey because that's actually the reason we're here. Sorry, guys. I no, was so blown away. We, we saw the news earlier today uh, as well. So we've been, everyone's been buzzing about it all, all afternoon. Well, it wouldn't have been quite such a shock if Kyle hadn't just flown home yesterday for the poison bed. And I'm thinking, why didn't he tell? Well, anyway, let's not go there. All right. We're so, happy to be here to celebrate it with Don. So congratulations, Don. I wrote him a better guy. I wrote him a vicious email before we sat down. <laughs> so we'll see how that. And he has a Spanish telephone, the rat. So I can't even text him by ire. So we'll see how it goes. Okay, guys. So I don't know exactly how you want to do this. Don, are you going to ask some questions or are we going to? All right. Then I'll just shut up now and turn it over to you. <laughs> yeah, I've got some, and please jump in um, as well, Barbara, as we go along. But I think so. So um, the the introduction that Barbara read for y'all is a little dated because there is something else that you guys are doing now that we didn't mention. So what 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 is you guys's y'all's big news uh, for your other series as well? Well, I made uh, I made uh, rosemary chicken for the first time. Is that <laughs> what are you talking? No, we're doing. We're going to be writing the uh, in the Tom Clancy universe with our good friend Don Bentley. So um, Mark yeah. Cameron has uh, has announced that he is going to be uh, stepping down from that series after a long run of phenomenal books. And we were honored that Tom Colgan approached us and asked if we would write book number twenty four in the Jack Ryan Senior. Um, wow! So, so and and because don has been such a good close friend of ours independent of the fact that we write in the same space we just you know shared backgrounds and stuff we hit it off from our very first thriller fest the that's one of the more exciting things i'm so blessed that i get to work every day with my best friend brian uh that's not many people that get to do that especially get to do it doing what we do something we love and so now being in the universe with our other good friend don is going to be cool and i hope it's going to end up with some a little bit more collaboration between the between the series and some some little Easter eggs that we can plant here and there. But to be able to write in the uh, in the shadow of one of your heroes is always awe inspiring. We we wrote the Griffin book and that was an amazing experience. Um, but writing in the Clancy universe, obviously, that's uh, just beyond words. Although I used a few, didn't I? <laughs> well. And so the reason I asked for that, asked that, I promise it's actually getting back to Dempsey, is counting Dempsey, I think you guys have about 87 different writing projects that you're working <laughs> on at any one time. And so Dempsey is a little bit, um, is, is um, more specific than that because it also combines some of the other universes, the tier ones and Sons of Valor and stuff like that. So before we start talking about the book, can you kind of set up where Dempsey falls within um, that universe and kind of how that fits in? Yeah, so uh, the Tier 1 series was our first series and um, Dempsey's book seven. So we had six books ahead of Dempsey. And when we sort of got into the middle of uh, the Tier 1 series, like you, like you joked about, Don, you know, we do have a little bit of frenetic yeah, creative minds and we're all we're trying to do lots of different things so uh you know in the middle of that we decide to stand up the sons of valor series and the shepherd series so we had to take a bit of a break um from tier one and so since collateral came out which is book six um you know it's been over two years since we had a tier one book and one of the things that we did sort of by accident but you know uh, you know how these things work 
we, we kind of painted ourselves into this prescient corner where collateral, which we wrote in 2019, was about uh, uh, a Russian push into Ukraine to sort of reclaim the Nova Russia dream. And, and a lot of that stuff sort of, you know, played out in real life. And so when we sat down to write Dempsey last year, we had to say, well, do we stick with, you know, the, the tier one world or do we try to match, you know, geopolitically what's happening here? And ultimately, you know, we did what, you know, any, any good author does and you, you split the middle. <laughs> so that's kind of where we ended up. And what's exciting about us for Dempsey is that, you know, it really empowered us to, to go somewhere with the character and maybe be a little audacious, um, you know, with the mission that we gave him because we really wanted to give the, the fans and readers who'd been so patient waiting for two years for this book, something that when they read it, they were like, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. Mm. And uh, you know, it, it sort of hit them right here. So that's a good lead into my next question. And I'm gonna ask uh, the two of you and, and hopefully with your two brains, you can actually figure this out um, since I often fail with my one, but the question that terrifies every writer and that is, what is Dempsey actually about? What is Dempsey actually about? I think that to understand what Dempsey is about, and this is, this is true of this particular tier one book more than any of the other six. To understand Dempsey, you really do have to understand who Dempsey is in the series, because mm -hmm. this is a series, you know, we arc, as you well know, Don, we talked about this many times and you do the same thing. We don't like to arc a character out over a book. We like to arc a character out over the series and show real change, real growth, changes in relationships and personality. In the case of John Dempsey, John Dempsey is a, a tier one Navy SEAL who loses his entire team and is recruited to become somebody else, to you know, bury his old self literally in, the, in Arlington uh, with his brothers and become a member of this super secret task force where he is initially tasked to hunt down and find the people responsible for the deaths of his friends. So what you see in Dempsey is a real arc, a, a significant arc from a very black and white world, door mm -hmm. kicking seal, you give me the mission package, drop me on the X and I'm gonna make sure it gets done to all those shades of gray that happen in the task force world and the OGA world. Um, and it's a struggle for that character. And in Dempsey, Book seven, we're able to sort of show the reader the culmination of that evolution and who Dempsey yeah. has become. He's definitely not Jack Kemper anymore. In this book, more than any of the others, he is Dempsey uh, for the first time, which is why we chose that title. That's a and that's a great um, a great lead into something I picked up. I was as I was reading is that you guys spent a lot of time even though you you arced this character over several books, this one specifically to me felt more like a crucible for Dempsey. And so there, there are many things, and you guys do this really well. I don't want to imply that it's navel gazing, but there, there, are, there are multiple times in there where Dempsey is reassessing his motives of what drives him, of why he does what he does. And so why write that book? Like why, why did you all decide to focus so much on his inner conflict in, in a genre that frankly, most of the time just relies more on external conflicts. Well, if you remember in the end of the last book, you know, we sort of left the world in a place where um, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of instability, very much like the world is right now. And I mm -hmm. think we turn to our heroes in times of uncertainty because we're looking for leadership. We're looking for somebody who has confidence and somebody who's going to be a hero and step up and solve the problem and at the end of that last book you know kelso jarvis comes to dempsey and says i have a mission and i think only you can do it do you want to take this mantle do you want to carry this load i think mm -hmm. you're the only guy that can do it and you know at the end of that book dempsey's thinking to himself i'm so tired just so tired but he motivates to, you know, when, when we see him in the beginning of Dempsey, you realize he said yes. He said yes mm -hmm. to that mission. And basically saying yes was the hardest thing he's ever had to do. And so we wanted to put a say, you know, when you have an impossible mission and it feels like nobody in the world can do it, how does a person carry that weight? And that's, that's what good. the story is about. 
But I think to, to sort of give that 35,000 foot view of exactly what Brian is saying, and this is something we share with you, Don, which is the only reason we like you, um, because he's army, um, just so you know, Barbara. But, um, you know, we think that it's a little bit weird and not weird, but very unique to find uh, writers in our genre who focus really hard on driving their stories with character. The thriller genre, and I'm not a complaining about this because I love all of these authors, but mm -hmm. it is a little different to have stories driven so heavily by character and relationship. Mm -hmm. We do it, you do it. There's a few others that do it very well. Um, and the books that don't have that are still great books. So it says maybe more about the, the writer than it, than it does the genre or the book. They're all enjoyable. But for us, having maybe it's because we served, maybe it's because of just who we are. We really mm -hmm. want to see that character and who he is and get to know him. And this yeah. book uh, was important. We almost can't write book eight without book seven. You can't take Dempsey to the end of book six and not have a book where you ask those questions if you mm -hmm. really want to delve into it. And that's why we did some of the other things that you saw in the book where we circled back after several books to his son, what's going on with mm -hmm. his son. And, um, you know, people have been asking us that. That's not why we did it. But, but people have been asking, what about Jake? What about Jake? So we, we had to look at Jake. We had to look at his relationship with Elizabeth Grimes, with Dan Munn, and where he came through all this. How can they be who they are without Dempsey? That's a big, you know, that's a big deep dig into those characters as well. So this book really is a pivot, not away from where we were but allows us to get to the next place that the whole team, not just Dempsey needs to go. Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me. So when I read um, Sons of Valor, it had not, not a similar pre premise, but the premise was that a, a tier one team was forming over again, right? Was forming from scratch. And so you got to see all these cool relationships come together and y'all did it so well. Um, the character, I just remember a call sign is heels as being like the one non-operator who has to fit in that. And so it was super, super compelling to see that happen, to see those relationships and stuff. Dempsey obviously is, is about Dempsey in, in the absence of the team. And so when you guys look at your, your arc of books and stuff, do you see this as um, an, anomaly or an anomaly or kind of a standalone of, hey, we wanted to really dive into Dempsey's story and have this one book, or is that a trend you see yourself potentially revisiting where you're having more spinoff books that just deal with one character like that? It's, it's a great question because it's something we talked about a lot during the writing of the book. Because, you know, one of the ethos of Dempsey is an ethos that we all share in real life. And that is, it takes more than one guy to drive an $8 billion submarine. It takes more than one guy to fast rope onto the X and grab bin Laden, right? These are, it's a team sport. And it is about mm -hmm. team and mission before self. There, the you know the stories where it's just the superhero, Superman kind of Navy SEAL doing it all on his own. It's not as entertaining to me because it's not as realistic to me. And those mm -hmm. relationships and the codependence you have on a team like that, it's a huge part of the story. So now we have Dempsey, uh, no spoilers, but he's off doing his thing behind enemy lines. His whole team thinks he's dead, he's by himself. And so Brian and I spent a lot of time, well, how do we do that? How do we make that realistic? How do yeah. we become those guys writing the superhero? Yeah. And what was funny is while we were writing it, Dempsey answered the question for us. And I, it sounds like some of you say on an interview, but I swear it just happened as we were mm -hmm. writing it. Dempsey started identifying the people around him, people who are, you know, not the people you would think. And he starts recruiting them and he forms his own team. Mm -hmm so that it can be, again, a team to accomplish a mission. So I do think you're going to see a change moving forward in Dempsey and how he approaches a mission. He is more super spy than super seal now. Mm -hmm. um, but we hope to pull forward that idea that no one is any better than the team that surrounds him. And so we will pull that through in the next book. So as, as military thriller writers, um, research is something that we all have to do and, and do extensively. And I, I love what, what Brad Taylor puts it, that um, when he goes somewhere, when he goes somewhere to reach, research a setting or something, something like 10% that he gets is what he's looking for and 90% finds him when he's on location, just 
completely unintentional. And so a good uh, portion of the setting of this book is a Russian prisoner. And so I'm just curious which of the two of you went to the Russian prison. Okay, that's you know, that's it, what it, I would have it stuck because we flipped a coin and then I had to go and I was away from my family and, you know, it's the, you know, yeah, I, did the, I did the beautiful and, you know. in Finland and he got to get arrested and go to the Russian prison. Yeah. So all kidding on that aside, there's, there's a great passage that you guys used to introduce um, Dempsey and the prison and it says, John Dempsey woke before the Russian national anthem played on the loudspeakers. A handful of other prisoners stirred in the 60-man cell block. He could hear them coughing and sobbing. Someone was always coughing in IK2. Someone was always sobbing. And so it's a great intro. And then there's also the amount, the attention to detail of what goes on in a prison, um, the caste system behind uh, with the prisoners, the different methods by which they're punished. Like, how, where did you guys go to get all that? All kidding aside, how did you come up with that? There's well, a, you got to give a shout out to Dimitri, don't you, Brian? <laughs> I mean, there is a wealth of information online about IK2 in particular. It's where uh, Alexei Navalny is right now. And so, you know, this is something that was of particular interest to both of us is just, you know, what is happening in Russia? Uh, you know, I think in general, the country is, is struggling for identity, trying to find itself. And, and I think, you know, um, we talk a lot about this idea that IK2 is not just your your typical American person, IK2 is a psychological meat grinder. And it's it's a combination of physical and and psychological abuse. And, um, you know, so there, there's firsthand accounts. If you go down this funny hole, you can read firsthand accounts. And we put, put a lot of those in there. You know, the, the idea that tuberculosis and HIV is mm -hmm. widespread, the fact that you have, you know, basically prisoners who sort of function as brown shirts or informants, you know, they work with the guards and, and that class of prisoner are typically your, either your, your child molesters or your rapists, people who would be badly punished in a normal prison system, they'd be at the bottom of the cast. So, you know, in typical Russian fashion, you know, they found a way to, uh, to exploit those individuals by giving them a position of power, right? So it, it allows those individuals now to sort of function as rats, you know, in the prison system, identify, you know, people that might be potentially rising in power, having trouble. Um, so the whole dynamic of what goes on at IK2 and why they would send someone like Alexei Navalny, who, you know, this is a man who is, you know, probably Putin's, in real life, probably Putin's, you know, number one adversary because he has such, he commands such respect. So what do you do with somebody like that, sort of a, a messiah type figure who commands respect, is you break them, you put them in the worst possible environment until you, you break them down mentally. So there's a lot of parallels in this book between real life and, and what's you know, happening in fiction. And so we stuck our, we stuck Dempsey in there for that same reason. You know, if you can survive this place, mm -hmm. uh, you can survive anything. You had mentioned that um, uh, the thing about Brad saying 90% of it is just stuff that you that finds you. And we got very lucky. Um, somebody that we had just run across uh, in our daily life uh, is a Russian. We won't give his last name. His name's Dimitri, and he's a, a Russian ex expat. And um, he is working in America. He's an American citizen now. But he's been here for about 20 years, and he's got family still in Russia. He last visited Russia about six years ago and said he will never go back because he was fearful for his life. But mm -hmm. he gave us a tremendous amount of insight, not about the prison specifically. Uh, Brian outlined very well a lot of that research that went into there, but how those relationships and how the caste structure is different than what we have in the mm -hmm. West, what we have in Europe or in America. And that insight definitely found its way into the book. We spent hours, wasn't it, Brian? Hours talking to, between the two of us, I bet we yeah. spent many, 20 hours talking to him about culture and, you know, the culture of, of change and how hard that is in Russia compared to the West. Um, and we were able to blend that not just into the prison, but also into the other chapters that take place in Russia. Yeah, when that, you, that was... when you, I just want to throw this out. You know, when you open the book, we, we usually start every book with a quote 
we, we write in three acts. So every, every part of the book has a quote. And this book opens with a, basically some song lyrics from a, a Russian uh, musical. And, and what it illustrates is this idea that in the Russian language, there are two words for truth. There's pravda and astenia. And pravda is this idea of relative truth. And astenia is the idea of absolute truth. And in English, we just have one word for truth. But what we've seen, interestingly enough, over the last you know four to five years is this infiltration of this idea of relative truth. You know, it came to our media in the term, in the, in the, the popular term, alternative facts. Okay, well, you believe one thing, but I believe another thing. And, and, in, and this idea that, well, your truth is whatever you want your truth to be. There is no absolute truth. It's all relative. And, you know, in Russia, uh, it's a propaganda state. So now, you know, what is Pravda? What is Estenia? Pravda is what the state is telling you is Estenia. In other words, the Russian state is saying, what we're telling you is absolute truth. We're doing mm -hmm. a special operation in Ukraine. It's not a war. But that is the absolute truth. And so there's mm -hmm. a, a degree, and what Dmitry explained to us is there's a strong degree of cynicism. You know, what do you believe? How mm -hmm. can you believe anything when all you're hearing from different places is relative truth, relative truth? And it's something I think as a nation we're going to be struggling with uh, in the coming decade. Yeah, that was uh, another point I wanted to touch on is, is how well you captured the Russian mindset. And so when when I was an FBI agent, I worked the Russian threat just a little bit, but there was a, a point where I was brand new to it and I was interviewing uh, somebody who had came from Russia and I was asking him some questions about um, folks who were at one time KGB officers and now uh, were doing something else. Or and so I was going through some names and talking to him and I pointed to him and I said, is, is this person KGB? or SVR, you know, even though it's, it's, it's the intelligence service, a lot of times the Russians will still say KGB because it's ingrained in them. And he, he said, he said, yes. And I said, no, I, I know he was once, but is he still now? And he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot. And he said, there is no such thing as former KGB. There's KGB and not KGB. And so that was just like such an eye-opening experience um, to me, to the Russian mindset what were some of those things when you were looking at the Russians as a people that were kind of eye-opening or, or made you guys change your view uh, of them or, or the view of the world once you got to see it through Russian eyes? I think that, um, and you know, A, we had the, the advantage of having all the time to speak with Dimitri, but also, um, you, I'm sure you remember, I grew up as a, as a young, as a child in Berlin at the height of the mm -hmm. Cold War. And so it was all very visceral for me, the idea of East and West. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I actually have a piece of the Berlin Wall. My dad was, we later found out, involved in some of the things that were going on over there. But um, I actually have a piece of the Berlin Wall that I keep in, in, my, in my home uh, as a remembrance. And so I, I have looked across uh, the wall and seen East German border guards, which were probably mostly Russians, uh, I've been through Checkpoint Charlie. And so though, as, especially as a child, that visceral response mm -hmm. to sticks with you. And um, between that and then the conversations with Dimitri, the things that jumped out as the most powerful for me were not about the Vori or the leadership. It was about the common man, which is what Dimitri was and still is. Um, and that is what Brian was alluding to, that cynicism. Like we think we're cynical. Mm -hmm. Nothing. We have nothing on the average Russian who just wants to feed their family. And, and, you know, there are stories of people who were standing on a corner. This is not in the Soviet Union. This is like a few years ago, standing on a corner uh, on their way home from medical school and just what's going on down there. And they're watching and there's some guy who's going to run for a local office saying things that the state doesn't want him to say. And this guy continues on down the block and a black car pulls up and they take him away. And they, he talks to KGB, you know, S, SVR, or whoever was working that town that day. And he was there for 12 hours and said, if you ever, if you ever come there again, you're going to disappear. And, mm -hmm. and the point of that story is not to paint a picture of Soviet Union Russia. The point of that is that because that still exists, there's an, what we see, think of as an apathy of the Russians to not stand up and say, let's find change, is not apathy at all. It's a deep-rooted cynicism because it seems so pointless. Mm -hmm. You know, he he would tell stories of small towns where 
Everybody in the town knew each other. Everybody in the town said, we voted for the same guy and he lost. And, and my vote doesn't matter. My voice doesn't matter. If I say the wrong thing, I get taken away in a black car to explain why I was standing on a street corner. Like Brian was saying, I'm just going to keep my head down. And I think I used to look at that and be angry at those people. Like, you know, change your country. If you don't, if the leadership is oppressive, get rid of it, right? We take so for granted the rights and freedoms that we have here. And I think I, the biggest thing I got about Russia from the research of this book was a new appreciation for the, for the common people. They don't love what they have, but they're afraid of change because it comes with a great cost. Yeah, that's and, and good. And at a higher... Yeah, you go ahead. And then I'm going to hold up my hand because I've actually spent a lot of time in Russia. I, I was studied Russian in Stanford, where you'll be happy to know that my my Russian professor Don's heard me say this, Ivan Ivanovich Stenbog Firmer, who escaped. Um, he was part of white Russia, escaped from Vladivostok to San Francisco. He taught Russian at Stanford. And then weekends, he went down to the Army Language School in Monterey and taught profanity so that the guys <laughs> behind the lines could actually swear in Russia. But here's a couple of things, because I have spent a lot of time there um, and studied a lot. There is a, a real streak of not just of mysticism. I mean, if you check out Boris Gudunov sometime, just listen to the opera and you can see how it goes. You'll notice that the patriarch of the Russian church is a huge ally of Putin in all of this. So, you know, They've been, I think they sometimes have a very, they do have a very fatalistic outlook as a, as a consequence of that. But when I was there, my husband and I spent a week as guests of the Hermitage to, in December, because I picked December in order to go. Um, and we talked to a lot of older Russians, and amazingly, many of them missed Stalin. They really mm -hmm. missed the Soviet era because they, they said that, that thing, they, knew, they knew every, it was very certain. There was no scary change or whatever it was, you know, that the rules were pretty clear. And many of them, the older ones, had a real nostalgia for, you know, for Stalin and the Soviet, I mean, the Soviet era. But what I thought was the most interesting is that we did a tour of the Black Sea in 2011, so it's not that long ago. And when we got to Sebastopol and that area in the Crimea, other people on the ship went off in one direction. I got us on a little tiny wooden Russian cruise boat with only little harbor cruise thing with only Russians. And uh, we sailed around the Russian Navy. We sailed all through the mm. harbor at Sebastopol. I was taking photos. You know, they were talking to us about the ships and the whole thing. It wasn't that long ago. And mm. it's hard to imagine now. Yeah. You know, that, that you could do that. I still have photos of, you know, the Russian Navy there in anchored in Sebastopol because they've looked for a warm water part forever. However, now they have mermaids since, you know, climate change has made it um, and a whole new ball game for Russia in terms mm -hmm. of ocean going. Um, and I think that's part of it too. You know, the, the climate change has opened up some stuff for them. And also they've always had a hard time integrating the Asian and the European parts because yeah. they're so different. You know, Peter the, the Great went west in order to have a warm water port and the whole bit, everybody spoke French, but what happened to all the Tatars and the Slavs and everything left behind? I don't think they've ever really fused a national identity because it's just, you know, mm -hmm. it's just so vast and mm -hmm. so different. It's an interesting time. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War, when, you know, when I was a child in, in school in the 1940s, I can remember being drilled to hide under desks and so forth. So it's all mm -hmm. come around again. Mm -hmm. like you, you'll love, you'll love that in the climax of this book takes place in the Bolshoi Theater to the opera Boris Gustav. So, well, <laughs> I listened to it. I think Mussorgsky, you know, wrote incredible music um, and Boris, but I think it, there's so much about Russia that is clear if you actually just attend the opera and listen I, to it. I think one of the challenges for Americans are, you know, we, at least our generation has been raised with this idea of a win-win, looking for the win-win, right? Like we believe that every solution, there's a win-win solution where both people can come out better through compromise or whatever. And, and, and that does not exist in the Russian mentality. And, and, and that, that impacts it, it makes it so that military strategists a lot of times and politicians are baffled when dealing with the Russians or even the 
the US media is baffled covering Russia because Russia thinks in terms of uh, the Russian mindset is a zero sum mindset, right? right? And there's a great book by Bill Browder called Red Notice. And he talks about in that book that, you know, in Russian business and Russian gangs and the void, like, you know, there'll, there'll be, a, there'll be a, a, an oligarch. He tells one particular story about an oligarch who is willing to basically burn down his entire empire just so he doesn't cede an inch to his competitor. And so that's kind of what we're seeing right now a little bit with the Ukraine-Russia conflict is, you know, when, when compromise is not an option, when me giving means you winning, then, you know, you're never going to reach a compromise. And that's very, very difficult uh, for some people to understand. And we tried to incorporate that theme throughout the book. I think you see that a lot in military, in especially in Russian, not even military strategy, but geopolitical strategy. This idea that, you know, if I can't win, then what I can do is make you lose so badly yeah. that I look like a winner in comparison. And you see that in a lot of their false flag operations, right? It's a lot of stuff that they do that the goal isn't even what that operation was. It's about them coming in later and looking like they did something good so that they look better than their real foe, whether it's us or Europe or whoever. It's a, it's a bizarre thing for us because it's just it, it's related back to that zero sum that Brian is talking about. It's just so foreign to us that, that it's uh, hard to wrap our heads around. And as a result, when it comes to strategy, we sometimes miss predicting what's going to happen because yeah. we don't factor that in. Uh, that, you know, their winning doesn't mean taking land sometimes. It means you losing it or you, you know, looking like a buffoon or looking, you know, looking bad on the on the, the world stage. It's a real thing in the in the way they approach geopolitics that is difficult for Americans to understand. And we we lose out sometimes by not understanding. Barbara, anything more on I was going to move off the the Russian part, anything more you were hanging on to or you wanted to point out? Um, well, everybody wants to know about writing process and particularly when you have two writers. So right, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you were going to get to that, but it'd be interesting to know how the two of you work together. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. And then also as the follow-up, if you guys could talk through your process, because it is interesting. And then also all kidding aside, you guys have a lot of different projects and talk us through how you decide what you're going to spend your time on. We just say yes to everything. Um, <laughs> that's our biggest problem. <laughs> that's going to have to change really soon. We'll, we'll do that one second, but our process probably takes two of us to explain it. But, um, you know, we've been on a lot of panels, as you know, Don, especially at Thriller Fest with other co-author teams. And what, I always like to start this answer by pointing out that none of this means anything because it only works for us. And, and it's really true because, you know, when we're with Preston and Child or with, when we were with Kathy and, uh, and uh, JT Ellison on that panel, they would say how they did it. And Brian and I are looking at each other like, that's, in, that's ridiculous. I could never, how does that work? <laughs> and when we said how we did it, everyone was like, there's no way that would work. And it's like, <laughs> so I think it's important to frame it that way, that this is how we work. And so people that are thinking about co-authoring, Find your way. Whatever anyone else has said works will not work for you necessarily, but pick, <laughs> pick and choose. But for us, what we do, and I think it's informed heavily by our military background and the idea of team before self and mission before self, um, is it is a completely equal partnership 100% of the time. And because there's really no ego involved in the writing process, as hard as that is for writers, because we're, you know, we're all insecure egotists anyway. Um, we actually are able to write simultaneously. So we'll arc the book out and you know we, we write in a three-act structure like most people, like Brian said, and we'll have a general idea where the story goes. You would think that we'd be real uh, plotters because of how the writing together you'd have to be. We're not, somehow it works, um, but we will write simultaneously. So we write multiple points of view and in act one, we'll get an idea of where we're going. We'll, uh, when I say outline a few chapters, I mean, it'll say chapter one dash Brian dash POV Dempsey. And it'll be like one sentence of what's supposed to happen there. So that's our outline. And then Brian will be writing chapter one, two, five, 11, whatever. I'm writing the other chapters uh, in a different point of view in that, in that act. And then we'll swap them around in the next act. 
But every few chapters, we'll swap those chapters back and forth. I'll rewrite his, and there is no restriction on what I can do. I don't ask permission. I don't call and say, hey, I'm going to change this. We just do it. He, he rewrites mine, and then they go into a master file, and we move on. And I get you're shaking your head. I get how impossible that sounds, but, but it really does work. And it works because we're able to say, look, we just want the best story. It's us writing a book rather than your stuff and my stuff. Um, and the other reason I'll let Brian talk about it, and that is that we really had to embrace the idea that a rough draft is not a book. A rough draft is a starting point, and we edit the same way that we write. And it's really, really an important part of our process, right, Brian? Absolutely. Yeah, we, before we started writing together, I think, you know, my approach, I can't speak for Jeff, but my approach was I would try to polish that cannonball as I went along. And that's really counterproductive. And I think for any aspiring or young author, you know, the temptation is, let me just kind of work on fixing what I wrote yesterday, as opposed to writing something new. And so one of the things that we do, and, and one of the reasons we're quite productive these days is because we set ourselves daily writing goals. We try to write five pages a piece and we're always moving the ball forward. And then once that rough draft is, is complete, we move into DE and we both really embrace the idea that DE is where the magic happens. You know, you hear this term, all writing is rewriting and that is our motto. So we go into DE, we've got a great developmental editor at Blackstone. Um, so when Andy hops in, he reads everything. It really becomes in a three-person team because now we've got his insights. And um, that's where we start to look at, okay, ask yourself these questions. How can you make it more exciting? How can you make it more suspenseful? How can you add more conflict? How can you make it more clear to the reader who might not know what's going on? So DE is when we take this book that's maybe a good book. And I think that's when we elevate it to a great book. At least that's our aspiration. So this whole process means that inevitably you've created a third voice. It's not your voice, Brian, or your voice. It's, you know, it's a, a different way, which in point of fact is actually how Preston and Child do write together. At the end, um, they achieve a third voice that is different than their their other books, you know, but I think that's fascinating. Wow. And that's, that's a lovely observation and something I think we take as one of our greatest compliments when we hear on reviews, people say, well, I can't tell who wrote what. It just sounds like Andrews and Wilson. We're like, all right, mission accomplished. That was our goal. Yeah, and we don't remember who wrote what. So that is- well, yeah. I'll tell you what, you guys have probably never read Manning Coles because um, I think he wrote, I think he wrote a book called Green Hazard and another one, I'll have to remember the name, which are one of the great espionage novels of World, World War II, just brilliant. But it was two people. One of them was a woman. And when mm. the other, one of them died, I don't remember which one, the other one tried to write another book and it just, it just did not mm. work because that, that third voice had disappeared with the death of one of the partners. Mm. That's um, why I make Brian take vitamins and exercise every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a really, you know, I, it's a fascinating process. And I, I totally agree with you that, you know, I, I'm always fascinated when readers or want to know how you did it, because the truth is it'll only work for you, whether it's you mm -hmm. writing together or if it's Don writing his own book, it doesn't mm -hmm. transfer. Right? Yeah. And Steve Berry, who we did his book launch last night was talking about that voice in the head, you know, that if you're a writer, you have to have that voice in the head. And if it's not there, um, mm -hmm. you know, nothing, you can't go find it. I mean, either yeah. it's there or it isn't, but you can't go look for it. So what yeah, was he's, you a, and he's, a, he's a, a guy that has really thought about his process and he's very introspective and very self-aware. And, you know, I, when I was just getting started 10 years ago, I'd go to some of Steve's classes at, you know, at Thriller Fest. And I learned a lot from him because he really thinks about, you know, everything he's doing in, in his creation of a story, so... Yeah, he does. You, um, we The video from last night is up on our website, and he has some very interesting things to say, if you have time for that. While I'm sitting here reading from Kyle Mills, who said, shit, I said, I, I forgot. I know I actually have told you. But anyway, um, it, so here's the thought. Mark Cameron is here on May 15th, and Jack Carter launches here on May 14th. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and Don's Don's Clancy, I looked it up, doesn't come out till August, but then. That's the second one. So the I have one, one 
Yeah, I have two that come out this year. I have one that comes out in May and one that comes out in August. So it would be really interesting. Maybe we could sort of like yeah. put everybody together if we already have Sunday and Monday with Mark. Yeah, let's do it. You, we love that. maybe you guys, maybe we could just do a, a thing, you know, for a couple of days and see how that works out. That would be really fun. I've been threatening to do a sort of whole, you know, military fiction event at the store, but it's not that easy to bring it off unless you can get everybody's pub dates to merge together. Well, let's think about it. Maybe, maybe I can hit up Mr. Brown for money. <laughs> he owes you after keeping you in the dark while Kyle and I were Actually, both there. He's self, he, 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 he's written me a self-exculpatory note saying, it wasn't me, it was Kyle, whatever. Oh, he, that little weasel. Wow, man, all the way around. So, you know, you guys are really impressive. Um, and I, I do, you know, it's true that you can say yes to everything. But at some point, <laughs> big, strong guys like you um, can only do so much. Um, you know, Mark was talking about maybe he just can't write two books a year anymore. You know, there's, um, I, you know, you have to wonder how long you can keep up the pace and really do great work. Um, and so eventually you have to kind of zero in on what it is that matters to you the most. But what an exciting time for you all, the three of you, when you've got so many possibilities and so many things that you can be doing wow it also oh, helps that probably fun. thanks to your military training you're in great shape <laughs> <laughs> you're weak little guys you probably couldn't keep up <laughs> this kind of punishment so i'm impressed all the way around right um so what, tell us about your television thing because that's really interesting can you say anything more than generally is just you know been optioned because most of the time there are gag orders involved. Yeah, and this work. is, and that's definitely the case here. We've pretty much said what we can say. What, but what we, what we can say is that, um, sort of related to this last conversation about how do you, how do you continue to be productive? For, for Brian and I, one of the ways, and maybe it's because we're immature, is <laughs> we need to be, we need to be re-stimulated and re-challenged. And so one of the ways we do that is we've been broadening the genre, our genre, our subgenres. You know, we have a book coming out this summer uh, that's definitely uh, falls smack in the middle of the techno thriller, near future sci-fi almost. Um, and so we're both very big science geeks. We're both educated in science. Uh, you know, he's a nuclear engineer. I was a vascular surgeon. And so we're fascinated by that. So that's one way you do it is you, you find new things that interest you and stimulate you. And then you want to write about it and it doesn't feel like work. And then the other way that we've done it is, is like with this media stuff. So a couple of years ago, Brian and I said, you know, where do we want to go with this? We're watching the changing face of storytelling, not just in America, but in the world. And it can almost be these individual buckets with no, with very little cross pollination. There are people that get all of their storytelling entertainment from video games. There's people that get it from movies. There's people that get it just from streaming television. There's people that get it from books. There are certainly people that get it from all of those but not like it used to be. And so if you really want to reach a lot of people with your stories, you're going to have to diversify the way you tell stories. And so a couple of years ago, we set as a goal to try to broaden out into uh, other forms of media like film and television. One of the ways we've done that, as you know, we optioned, uh, we were able to option this, this series, Tier One, uh, with the Cross Brothers, who we love, uh, and I think they're going to do a great job with it. But in the meantime, we also started creating a lot of other intellectual property um, where we could co-develop something for both media and books uh, because we're writers at, at our heart and core. So we have started writing short stories and with Blackstone's help and Brendan Deneen, who's our amazing film agent, we we're able to get some of these treatments out there. And we now, if you go to our website, you'll see we have a film and TV tab. And we've got a list of a dozen projects that are in various stages of development because of the gag orders you're talking about. You obviously know a lot about that business. There's not a lot we can say about individual projects, but we have uh, several um, TV shows in various stages of development. We also have a couple feature films with a lot of big players, Sony and Picture Start and Skydance. And uh, it's been really, really exciting, but it does push us to that point where decisions have to be made. Maybe we can't write three or four books a year if we're also going to be executive producers on some of these things. So we're going to know more in the next year or two of how we're going to have to call ourselves in various directions to be able to get it all done. God, that's like Rupert Murdoch burgeoning. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to leave out Sumner Redstone, who's responsible for much grief in the world. Simon and Schuster, but no, it, it's it's fascinating. Of course, Blackstone is such an interesting book publisher because you know their their thing was audio and remains audio. So I suspect they are more flexible um, than traditional publishers might be in you know ways that you go about things. As I said earlier, I really like working with them because they are like that. And actually, we do a lot of work with Amazon. It's surprising how many authors have um, found short story um, outlets and so forth on, on Amazon as opposed to their regular publishers. You know, it's a great way to get things done. So it is all evolving. And, you know, one of the questions for me is, you know, what's the place of a bookstore in all of this? And, you yeah, know, I think, I think, and, and I think this is maybe taking our conversation full circle, which is a beautiful thing about it is, you know, something Don brought up at the beginning of the place, the role of bookstore is community. You know, you provide community for authors and readers and booksellers uh, all together. And I think without bookstores, uh, you know, that's the glue that holds it all together. Everything would fall apart. And so, you know, it's very, very important to us to, to do events like this and to meet people like you and to stay connected because you are the glue that holds the entire industry together. Well, I want to say, you know, related to that, I want to throw a little message out to anyone that's listening. And that is, I know a lot of people who have told me that they love a bookstore and they go in a bookstore and they'll spend a morning and they'll sip their coffee and they'll go up and down and they'll find the books they want and the books that they love. And then damn if they don't leave and order them on Amazon. And we're not anti-Amazon, but if you continue that practice of not supporting your local bookstore, you're going to be really sad when they're not there anymore. And so I think that authors need to be a little more vocal in our support for the local bookstores and, and let people know. They just, you would think they would understand it because they do go there. They go to book signings and they just wander the, the aisles and the shelves. But if they're not spending their entertainment dollars there as well, then they're going to see these things disappear. So that's something that I think all writers need to do a better job of is promoting our local booksellers. Well, that's that's very kind of you. And I thank you for that message. I mean, a bookstore, I mean, I didn't anticipate that it would be a theater. I thought it would be a bookstore. I just do this for fun anyway. Don may have told you that. It's a not-for-profit operation. So it's been it's been really interesting to watch it grow, but it has definitely grown in the direction of theater. And for example, we don't ticket any of our events. We stream all of our live events. And thank God for Zoom, which I thought is the best tool that we have had. We started streaming in 1995 and we've been through some clunky, you know, take on the, on the way to getting to this. But what we found um, is that this conversation will reach all the people who, who enjoy your stories, whether it's audio, whether it's a digital book, whether it's a physical book. And if you, I mean, I had this conversation with Michael Conley because we were doing his book lunch in November, whatever it is, something or other came up and I, I started talking, but he'd done an audio book or I don't even remember what it was. And I was talking it up to people and Michael looked over at me, he said, Barbara, he said, you actually own a bookstore. Why are we <laughs> talking about all this? And I said, well, you know, the thing is that you have readers or fans who do come to your stories in other media. And I think part of our job, you know, is to is to let people get acquainted with you who do experience your stories in other ways. And because Zoom lets us do that, we have gradually developed something like 72% of our customers don't live in Arizona. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. You know, are we really a local bookstore? In some senses, mm -hmm. yes. Some senses, no. So we have to That's evolve cool. with technology. And we have to remember, you know, that... The, the the sort of deal I say to customers is, you know, it's like going to the theater, you know, if you come, buy a book, right? That's your, yeah. that's mm -hmm. your ticket. I'm oh, not yeah. sure how, how the whole revenue stream works this way. But the thing is, if we don't do it, we'll never find out, will we? How yeah. can we actually monetize <laughs> this conversation is an interesting point, you know, but yeah. but so far, it's so far it's holding together. I just don't know you know, where it's all going. But that that's sort of fun too, isn't it, right? We, none of us know where it's really going. So yeah. 
Well, thank you. Um, Jacob, why don't you, I forgot, you're still there and it's six yeah, been so long. Whoops. Come back, come back and tell us if anybody has any questions. I can tell how long you've been up there because the sun has changed. <laughs> What's up, guys? Uh, we definitely have some questions here um, in the comments. So this one's for Don. Uh, in your previous interview with Book Spy, you mentioned your day job. Are you still working your day job? Or are you now a full-time writer? No. So thankfully, uh, about two years ago, I was able to go full-time. So I've been, uh, I've been full-time since then. This one's from Gary. Hey, brothers, I'm glad for your all's success and well-deserved recognition. What it ha what has it been like for you guys to go from one series to several? Exhausting. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things that happens when you're writing a series is um, sometimes it's nice to be able to step away from that series. And so for us, part of the motivation of writing other series is that we get to meet new people. And, you know, Jeff sort of alluded to this earlier that we let the characters inform the story. Um, but it's almost weirder than that. It's almost like, you know, they sort of very much become real people in your lives and you're interested in what's going on in their lives. And so when you get to um, into somebody else's story and uh, spend some time with, with those characters, it's really fun to come back. It's like reconnecting with an old friend when you get to come back to the series that you've stepped away from. So for us, I think it keeps us fresh, keeps us motivated and keeps us creative. That was a way better answer than mine. <laughs> I can see you really are good friends, right? Nobody's trying to upstage <laughs> the other one. It's exhausting, Barbara. It is exhausting to pretend to like him on these things. <laughs> <laughs> You can't afford to break it up now, guys. I'm gonna squish it. I'm gonna squish your head. I'm squishing your head. Squishing your head. All right. Uh, will Jack Ryan Jr. finally find a wife? And also, what aspect of Jack Ryan is still yet to be explored? Ooh. That's a really good question. I think um People have asked me before about, and, and now obviously Brian and, uh, and Jeff are doing it too, about what it's like to go, how do you come to a legacy series, especially one that the Clancy that has been around as long as it does, has been as a writer. And I think what you look for is kind of a piece of untilled soil. So like what's something in that series that hasn't been addressed yet? And so for me, um, I started with Target Acquired, and when I wrote that book, I told Tom, Tom, my editor, that what I really wanted to do for that first book is just to focus on Jack Ryan Jr., because selfishly, I really wanted to understand him at kind of a visceral level and figure out what made him tick, and as I started doing that, I thought, you know what, this guy is in the campus, and he's in this um, off-the-books intelligence organization, and unlike every other person he's surrounded with, his sole criteria for getting in the doors, his last name was Ryan. And so I thought, you know, what would that be like? What would that, what would he, would he have a chip on his shoulder? Would he, and then I started thinking about how old he was and, and how much he looks up to his dad and where his dad was at that point in time, right? So his dad, when his dad was his age, because we all do this as we grow older, we think, what were my parents doing when they were in their 20s or 30s or 40s? And when his dad was the age that Jack Ryan Jr. is now, he was married and had kids and was established. And Jack Ryan Jr. was kind of the opposite of that. And so as you can see of the three book arc that kind of ends with Flashpoint is examining those attributes in his life. You know, wh what is he, do? why is he doing what he's doing? What does, does he want to have a family and stuff like that? And so I think you'll see uh, some of that explored in Flashpoint too. So there's there's my plug for the May book with Barbara, hopefully. Well, actually, that's an interesting thought for you guys, you know, because Jack Ryan Sr. is his can't really, it's a different thing. Maybe, yeah. maybe you know, are prequels part of your thought process there? They're not right now, but I and, and we're not gonna we're not gonna give any spoilers, but I will tell you that that conversation of what's the untilled soil. That's huge. And, you know, in this series, obviously, this is, you know, this universe is so well developed. And there's been so many talented writers 
you know, Don and the Jack Ryan Jr. and Mark Graney and Mark Cameron. And like, there's just so many people that you, it's a little intimidating to come into book 24 and say, okay, I'm going to have the, br the brilliant idea that no one thought of. I will say that we found some untilled soil that we're very excited about. Um, so at least for the next book, for our first book, I think we're good <laughs> with something that's untilled <laughs> soil. Uh, after that, I don't know. We might have to call Don crying. And ask <laughs> so since we're it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> right, so we're having this multimedia moment. I'm going to put in a plug for the third Jack Ryan film. I was just so-so about the second one. First one was kind of okay, but I have to say the third one I thought was really interesting and I covered myself with glory by confusing it with the great man. <laughs> I mean, that was so, so Mark Grady had to sort of say, no, no, honey, it's really, <laughs> oh well. Um, but anyway, I did, I did think that, um, that that's yet another part of the Clancy universe is, you know, they're doing the Jack Ryan movies, which yeah. you know, give you yet a different, um, it's interesting for readers, you know, to think about have to, you have to absorb all these different Jack Ryans. And it's, and it's hard for readers too, unfortunately, I wish, I wish in some ways they would, they would look at trying to figure out how to make it easier to onboard readers who find that series and love it. Because if you go, from seeing John Kaczynski on Amazon Prime to reading one of the books and you go from this 30 year old guy to you know 60 or 70 year old guy that's president there's going to be a little bit of cognitive dissonance there of like what what am I reading what is going on here yeah. and so we we've always said that it would be a better tie-in to take the books I write and try and tie that to the series because the the main character even though it's the son it's the same age but that's probably uh, it's a hard thing for the Clancy folks to to manage for sure. But, but he's a fan. Too late now, right? That's the other yeah. problem. It's too yeah. late. Well, you it, know, it, branding, it as a reboot. It's, branding is so important. Maybe just getting the Clancy name out there or the Ryan name mm -hmm. you know, is good enough. Yeah. I mean, Jacob, sorry, we've left you behind. <laughs> Speak up. No, that's it. Was that it? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> flattened him. Well, this has really been a fascinating conversation. And while we're talking, I'm flashing emails here from Kyle and David. So um, <laughs> we'll see how it all works out. Seriously, though, it would be lovely to figure out something where we could get everybody together. Um, and since Mark has to come down from Alaska, um, it's not that easy to get him here. But we'll, we can talk, see what we can work out. Well, we try I to drop the book every four months, so you can count us in anytime. Well, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, seriously, it really, May 14 and 15 would be kind of an interesting target date there. Um, and for some reason, every month in publishing, there's an orphan month. I mean, every year in publishing, there's an orphan month. Yeah. Usually, usually it's August. Occasionally it's been February, but this year it's May. So mm. it'd be so far anyway. So it's a good time to be doing something that would get more focus because you're not being completely distracted by you know, yeah. other stuff going on. So anyway, we will talk. What a pleasure it's been to meet both of you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Blackstone, for arranging it. And thank you, Don, who is becoming kind of our permanent guest host. And I think it's wonderful that you have that much energy and time to actually read these books and prepare as well as you do. So I really thank, thank you. you. It's really been, it's been wonderful. So Jacob, thank you for your patience. Good night, everybody. Good night. Nice. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.